Good morning, Grace Point. It is so good to see you today. Whether you're here for the 500th time or maybe the very first time, we are thrilled to have you with us today, wherever you are in the world, Nashville or anywhere else. We're glad you're here and hope you felt right at home in our gathering this morning. Well, we're continuing the season of Advent. I want to begin today with a quote from the late scholar Marcus Borg, who is one of my favorites. He says this about Advent. Advent is a season of anticipation, yearning, and longing for a different kind of life and a different kind of world. And, and I think we could even go farther and say that Advent is also about how that different kind of life and that different kind of world would come into being. And so today, the second week of Advent, we join with Christians for centuries, and we join with Christians from all over the world who are going to be reflecting on the idea of peace. That's the theme for the second week of Advent. And I want to kind of piggyback on what we did last week. And in, in, uh, so let's go back for just a second. Last week, we talked about how the early Christians, specifically in the case of last week and this week, a writer named Matthew, um, how he used this pattern in his story of Jesus, where he's talking about prediction and fulfillment. So something happens in the life of Jesus, and Matthew will say, well, this is what the prophet said, and this happened to Jesus to fulfill what the prophet said. And, and last week, it was Isaiah 7. And so last week, we went back to Isaiah seven fourteen. this text about a young woman who's pregnant, giving birth to a child that would be Emmanuel, God with us. And we went back and we asked some questions about what was going on in the original context so we could figure out maybe what Matthew was trying to do, because nobody had ever read the Hebrew scriptures that way before. The first Christians were actually all Jewish, and so they were all, the, the Hebrew scriptures, they wouldn't have called them that. They would have just called it their, their scriptures. And when they had their experiences of Jesus, it caused them, because Jesus broke their categories and their boundaries, like that nothing prepared them for the experience they had with Jesus. And so what, that, what happened to them is that they went, then went back to their scriptures and tried to understand what they'd missed. And they began seeing hints of Jesus, or, or essentially what they would do is they would begin taking sections of things the prophet said, and they would begin wrapping those things around Jesus to try to tell the story, to say, this is who Jesus is for us. This is what the Jesus story means for us. And so I want to continue in the Gospel of Matthew today to, ask, to, to look at a text and to ask some questions. Now, I'll give you a spoiler alert on the front end if, um, if you've never read the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is trying to make us see who he thinks Jesus is. And Matthew's understanding of Jesus is that Jesus is Moses 2.0, that Jesus is a new Moses leading people on a new exodus. And so that's how he frames the Jesus story. Right, beginning in chapter 2 with the visit of the Magi who um, come to visit the newborn king of the Jews. And Herod finds out he's actually already the king of the Jews. He doesn't really like the idea of another one. And so he tries to get rid of the baby. And as a result, his parents, Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, take him down to Egypt. And then he's after Herod dies, he's called out of Egypt. So right, it's retelling the Exodus story through the life of Jesus. And then when Jesus um, is an adult, he goes into the desert to be baptized by a guy named John, who's known as John. We call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. It's, it's not like John the Presbyterian, Catholic, or Methodist. Um, it, it's like John the Immerser. And John is leading this movement of repentance in the desert, in the Jordan River, and he's baptizing people as a symbolic new beginning 
and fresh start. And so Jesus goes out there and he's baptized by John. And so Jesus, again, is retelling, Matthew through Jesus is retelling the the story of Israel, where they go through the Jordan River into the land of promise. And then after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the desert where he spends 40 days and 40 nights, which is a retelling of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, except where the Israelites failed on their journey. Jesus will not give in to those temptations. And so after that moment where Jesus is sort of retelling that story uh, of Israel in the desert, Matthew gives us another prediction of fulfillment in chapter four. He says, now, when Jesus heard that John the Immerser was arrested, he went to Galilee. He left Nazareth and settled in Capernaum, which lies alongside the sea in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what Isaiah the prophet said, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali alongside the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who lived in in the dark have seen a great light and a light has come upon those who lived in the region and in the shadow of death. Now, so Matthew is essentially saying, Jesus relocates when John is arrested. Jesus sees this as his moment to launch his own movement, his own public ministry, public work. And as he does this, he relocates himself to a new base of operations. And where he locates himself, Matthew says, oh, oh but back in the, on the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, we have this text about people who are living in a place of darkness, receiving light. And Jesus moves into that place and Jesus is embodying light. So this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 9. So let's turn back there for context. And the context is actually similar to Isaiah 7. So the kings of Israel and Aram, or what we call Israel and Syria today, have allied themselves against the, the king of Judah, a guy named Ahaz. Their goal is to convince Ahaz or to depose him and put somebody else in place who will partner with them to um, resist the Assyrian Empire. It was the growing empire du jour of the day. It was the, becoming the big monolithic empire that would essentially control most of the world. And so Ahaz doesn't want to partner with them. He feels like it's too dicey. So Ahaz wants to actually reach out to the Assyrian king and ask him for help. But the prophet Isaiah sees this as a move of unfaithfulness. Isaiah says, look, you have to trust God on this one. God will give you a sign. The young woman is pregnant, which means Ahaz's wife is pregnant with a descendant for the throne. Essentially, Isaiah is saying the fact that he's going to be born means that your dynasty will continue. But instead of being faithful, Ahaz chooses to be unfaithful. And what Isaiah does between Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 in chapter 8, Isaiah essentially says, because of unfaithfulness, there will be a period of judgment where things don't go really well. But after that period is over, there's going to be a new beginning. There's going to be a restoration. There's going to be a new leader because Ahaz is sort of the picture of failed leadership. Somebody who doesn't maybe understand that it's, he's failed in leadership. But Ahaz has failed in leadership. The, the way that um, the, the Jewish kings were evaluated based on like how, what kind of leader were they, what kind of reign did they have, the way the writers of the Bible evaluate them, it's not so much on their economic policy. It's not so much on, it's not on how they grow GDP, right? Like the way they are evaluated is really a couple things. Did they, did they lead the people to be faithful to God? And did they lead the people to be faithful and equitable and just with one another? Right? That's sort of the criteria that the king has used. So listen to the verdict on Ahaz from 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. and He ruled for 16 years in Jerusalem. He didn't do what was right in the Lord's eyes, unlike his ancestor David. Instead, he walked in the ways of Israel's kings 
making images of the Baals and burning incense in the Ben Hinnom Valley. So he worshiped the sort of idols from other religions around them, rejecting the, the, the Jewish God, Yahweh. And it actually says he burned incense in the Ben Hinnom Valley. And it goes on to say, he even burned his own sons alive, imitating the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Now, this is really interesting. When we get to the New Testament, there's this place called Gehenna. And it's actually the word in the New Testament that gets translated hell. But Gehenna was an actual place on the map. It was a place outside of Jerusalem that in Jesus' day had become a garbage dump. A place where there was continual fire, where you would have dogs fighting for scraps. What that place used to be is the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Valley of Hinnom, uh, in the Hebrew scripture era, in the era of the kings, Many of the kings would go into that place and they would sacrifice their sons to a god called Molech. And the way you would sacrifice to Molech is you would put your, 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 your children, you would sacrifice them in fire to Molech. And the writer of Chronicles says Ahaz was known for joining in that practice of going into this place. And so by the New Testament era, of course, it becomes known as sort of this place of waste and it becomes this metaphor for what happens on a sort of a cosmic scale in a human life when you, you choose to engage in those sorts of ways. It also says that Ahaz sacrificed and burned incense at the shrines on every hill and beneath every shady tree. He's, the op- he's doing the opposite of leading people to be faithful to God. And so Ahaz is a failed leader. And, and the promise of Isaiah is that there would be a, another leader who would come and lead the, lead the people faithfully. So this is the context where Isaiah, the Isaiah quote from Matthew begins. The people walking, Isaiah 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in pitch dark land, light has dawned. You have made the nation great. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as those who divide plunder rejoice. As on the day of Midian, referencing a, a battle from the past, you've shattered the yoke the the oppression that burdened them, the staff on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor, because every boot of the thundering warriors and every garment rolled in blood will be burned, fuel for the fire. And this part will be probably familiar. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. Authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom, establishing and sustaining it with justice and righteousness now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of heavenly forces will do this. Now, this passage has been used, as you can see, it's been adapted by Christians. And actually, the translation we just read, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, you you can tell the translation we we read actually has a Christian bias to it. Uh, And we'll say more about that in a minute. The problem is, if we just interpret this the way Christians have, then it really doesn't make sense. Um, why it would even exist. Because the, the, if this were a prophecy of something that would happen, again, 750 to 800 years in the future, how would this in any way, shape, or form make sense to Isaiah's audience? Right? It, it wouldn't. So Isaiah has to be talking about somebody, or, or, or at least the idea of somebody, who would soon come to the throne. Now, just for fun, this is actually, you could call it a title, but this is actually a, this wonderful counsel of mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, in Hebrew, it's a name, and I'm gonna, it's going to be on the, the screen there. And I'm going to take a shot at pronouncing this. Um, the, the name in Hebrew is Pele Yoez El Gabor Abi Ad Sar Shalom. Um, 
Try saying that three times fast. Pele, Yoez, El Gabor, Abi Ad, Sar, Shalom. It's not just a title. It's it's sort of it's it's a ti- it's a title name if that makes sense. Now scholars think this is a reference again to Ahaz's son that would be born Hezekiah. And when Hezekiah is is sort of um, the the stock is taken of his reign by the chronicler in Second Chronicles twenty nine. Here's what the here's what the writer says. Hezekiah did what was right in the Lord's eyes, just as his ancestor David had done. So this idea of a faithful ruler who would lead the people to be faithful to God and just and equitable for another is embodied in Ahaz. Now this idea of wonderful counselor, mighty God. People say, oh yeah, because Jesus is. Uh, if we allow. Um, a Jewish translation of this to, to shape our thoughts on it. Maybe that'd be helpful. Here's, here's from the Jewish study Bible. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given us, and authority has settled on his shoulders. He has been named the mighty God is planning grace. Now, what's interesting about that is um, what, what is translated in most Christian Bibles as wonderful counselor, mighty God, that same word gets used later in, I think it's Isaiah 25, and it gets translated as a sentence, not a title. And it's this idea of grace. The mighty God is planning grace, the eternal father, a peaceable ruler. And the text continues in the Jewish study Bible. In token of abundant authority and of peace without limit upon David's throne and kingdom, that it may be firmly established in justice and in equity now and forevermore. Right? The hopes for Hezekiah are high, that he will be a faithful king a king that will lead in the establishment of a peaceable kingdom that is faithful to God and that creates justice and equity among the people. Of, of course, in Hebrew, the, the idea is, of this peace, it's, it's a word, it's a concept called shalom. And it speaks of more than just a cessation of conflict. I think when we think about peace, we automatically tend to, to think, well, it's the end of violence and conflict, which is which is true. And it, we, need to, we need to continue to reference this. I, I had a friend who on um, Instagram or Twitter this past week, they posted a picture a friend had sent them of somebody who was open carrying. And on their holster, they had the text from Matthew from the Sermon on the Mount where it talks about blessed are the peacemakers. Right, I mean, I I think the word blasphemy still (laughs) has some weight to it when we're talking about taking this idea, Jesus' idea of being a peacemaker, a a nonviolent presence in the world, leading the world toward justice, and shalom, like when we take that and somehow baptize it and, and, and put it in, put, baptize violence through it. I mean, that is just, it's just wrong on every level. And, and so, yes, we need to talk about peace as sort of a cessation of conflict and violence. But peace means much more. It, 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 shalom speaks of a wholeness and a well-being of, of everything and everyone being in right relationship. Other ways that Isaiah would talk about this is the wolf lying down with the lamb. Right. I mean, it's this idea of of the predator and prey no longer having that relationship, but being able to coexist and live and, and um, lie together. And so it, it absolutely to me makes total sense that the first Christians would reread this text in light of their Jesus experience and see glimpses of Jesus, because in Jesus, they found the Prince of Peace, one who through his life. They experienced the taste of the endless peace, peace for which they and generations before them had longed. I mean, this longing for shalom wasn't new in Jesus' day, and it wasn't new in Isaiah's day. The, the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jewish people had been the victim of one empire after another. 
right? They'd been slaves in Egypt. They were oppressed by Assyria. They were oppressed by um, the Babylonians. They were oppressed by, oppressed by the Persians. They were oppressed by the Greeks. And in Jesus' day, they were being oppressed by the Romans. And in Jesus, they glimpsed this peace they had longed for. And Isaiah gets something right about peace that we often miss. Notice this line, peace without limits upon David's throne and kingdom, that it may be firmly established in justice and equity now and evermore. Isaiah ties the establishment of peace in the world to the establishment of justice and equity in the world. Because when there's no justice, there can't be peace. Our tendency is to gravitate toward, at least my tendency is to gravitate toward what sounds better and what feels less difficult. So a month or so ago, we took our kids to Target, like as the Christmas stuff was in full swing out, we took our kids to Target to pick out an ornament for their um, Christmas tree upstairs. And they were so excited. Um, we, we don't often all go in a store, and so it's a big deal when we do. And so they were really excited, and we spent a long time down the Christmas ornament aisle looking at all the bright, shiny ornaments of cartoon characters and superheroes and all the good stuff. And every one of them picked out an ornament except for one. And uh, one of my girls had noticed this box down the aisle and had become quite enamored with it. It was a box that had a pretty ribbon on the outside. Um, and the, the purpose of the box was is it's a place you store ornaments, right? But she, she didn't, under, she, she kind of felt like there was something good inside the box. Like, like there was, maybe she should choose the box because there may be all kinds of stuff in there. Um, it's, you, you can't see what's in there. So, and I even picked it up and opened it and showed her, but like, she was just intent. She wanted this empty box. She was just convinced, I guess, that when it got home, there would be a surprise inside. Um, and it took a lot of negotiating to get us out of that aisle without, without that box. But I think that's what we tend to do when it comes to peace. We're so enamored with something that seems to be peace that relieves momentary tension or that sounds like it might be a good thing, but in reality, it's just empty. It's not actually making peace. It's actually just papering and covering over all the things that have led to peace not being possible and not happening on earth. It's something I've been thinking a lot about in this post-election period we're living in. There's an immediate pivot after the race was called uh, after the race was called by the president-elect to start talking about the need for unity in our country, and we heard this call to move forward together. And I want that so deeply. And I'm it's it's I'm so excited to to have leaders who are beginning to think about how do we like we we need to be able to move forward together. How do we begin to move forward together? And yet I also understand that for that to be a reality in our country, in our communities, on our streets, um, for that to happen, we have some real real issues I think we have to address because we, we cannot ask, can, can we, we can't ask people of color, for example, to pretend that everything is okay and that everything is normal when white supremacists have been emboldened and empowered in this country in the last four to five years in ways that we haven't seen maybe in our lifetime, in my lifetime. How can we talk about bringing peace, which is about healing and wholeness? How can that be made when the very humanity of the BIPOC community has been diminished again and again and again and devalued by racism, both individually and systemically? How can we say to the LGBTQ plus community that we need to be at peace with those who are actively trying to rob them of their basic human rights? 
How can we tell those who are struggling to put food on the table and a roof over their heads that they should just be at peace with politicians who have the luxury of debating uh, instead of acting to care for our citizens in the middle of a global pandemic and an economic crisis? How can we tell people to be at peace with leaders or neighbors who refuse to take simple basic steps to protect the well-being of our communities by wearing masks and physical distancing? Whatever all that would be, it wouldn't be peace. It wouldn't be shalom. It would be some sort of discounted version of it. Because shalom is about healing. It is about wholeness. It is about well-being. I think this is why Christmas can still change the world. Because for all of our hopes and all of our cliches, some days it feels like the world is no closer to peace and justice and equity than when this whole thing started. And for Christians, we see in the Jesus story an invitation to build that kind of world. I've come, become convinced that it's not that we have tried Jesus' vision and that it failed. It's that we've never really tried it. We've turned what the New Testament calls the gospel of peace into a doctrine or a theory that is to be debated instead of a vision for bringing transformation, healing, and wholeness to the world. Making peace means that we have to come to terms with and acknowledge the ways we have lived that have disrupted the shalom of the world. One writer, I believe uh, Cornelius Plantinga maybe, his definition of sin is culpable disturbance of shalom, right? It's, it's sin, is, it's all the ways we disrupt the harmony and wholeness of the world. So when justice has been brought to the sick, to the poor, to the lonely, to the marginalized, and to the oppressed, not in the form of some otherworldly spirituality, but in really concrete, in this life, physical things like medicine, food, community, liberation, and equity, then we'll know endless peace, peace without limit. When war stops being more profitable than peace, when money stops determining the value of a human being, when the wholeness and flourishing of every single human being becomes the benchmark of success for us, when those moments happen, then we will know real, lasting, and transformative peace. And I know it will surely take more than just you and me to make that happen in the world, but I also know that it can't happen without you and me. I, I wanna end today this, thinking about peace, thinking about what peace really means. It's, it's, actually, it's not this sort of papering over of the problems in the world, but it's actually engaging them. It's telling the truth about our culpability in them. And it's saying, we want a different world. We want a world of justice and equity, a world of healing and wholeness. That's the world we long to build. And as we think about our own roles in that, I, I want to end with this prayer attributed to St. Francis. Uh, now, almost everybody knows and says that St. Francis didn't actually write this prayer. It actually came along much after his time. But it's still a beautiful prayer, and it's still something I think for us, um, we can ground our hope that we could be these kinds of people. Um, and so it's going to be on the screen, too. So if you'd like to read along, um, feel free to do that right there in your living room or wherever you happen to be while you're listening to this. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O oh, divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, 
It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. God, make us an instrument of your peace in the world. That is my prayer for my life, for my family, for this community. And yes, it'll take a lot more than us, but it cannot happen without us. Peace on earth, question mark. That's what we titled this this sermon. Peace on earth, question mark, because it really is a question. Are we willing? Are we ready? Do we have the courage? Are we committed to the work of transformative healing peace in this world? Advent invites us to this question. And through through the life of Jesus, Christians have seen a very compelling call to an answer, which is, yes, we must be about this work. It's not someone else's work. It's not the work of future generations. Yeah, it'll be their work when they get there. But right now, in this moment, it is our work. And may we take it up with seriousness and and with urgency because the world desperately needs peace. Mm -hmm.